The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In 1985, Cheryl Guyant was 10 years old when she'd learned she'd been adopted. What she didn't realize was that very same year, her biological mother was experiencing a living nightmare. After being abducted by one of the most notorious serial killing duos in American history, it would take another 16 years before Cheryl would learn her mother's identity and truth about a murderer. When a retired detective sent her an 11-page letter written by her mother at the crime scene, for the first time in her life, Cheryl was able to understand not just what had happened to her mother, but who her mother had been. Join me now as we dive into the abduction and murder of Cheryl O'Coro, a 26-year-old mother who became a victim of two serial killers you'll hear the twisted story of two of the most diabolical murderers we've ever covered and how their vicious crimes are still impacting lives today, nearly 40 years later. Anyone who's worked in law enforcement can tell you just how quickly situations can escalate, instantly going from one to 10. And if you've ever watched the show Cops, then you know that even routine traffic stops can instantly turn into a high-speed chase or even a shootout. But what happened in San Francisco at the South City Lumber Company in the spring of 1985 was something else entirely, an escalation beyond anything most police will ever see in their careers. And it all started out as a simple case of shoplifting. The day was June 2nd, just afternoon, when a 61-year-old reserve police officer named John Callis walked into a hardware store to do some shopping. As John browsed the store, he noticed an Asian man in his mid-twenties shoplifting a heavy $75 bench vice. After informing employees, they raced outside to find the shoplifter standing next to an orange gold Honda Prelude. But as soon as John began to confront the man, the shoplifter fled the scene. Before tearing off, he hadn't closed the trunk to the car all the way. And when John opened it up, there was the vice he'd stolen, price tag and all. And there was something else that caught John's eye, a 22 caliber handgun fitted with a silencer. Immediately, John suspected there might be more to this story than a simple petty theft and he walked back inside the hardware store to call the police department. And this is where things began to escalate. After police arrived, they began treating the Honda like a crime scene. They ran the plates, which came back registered to a man named Lonnie Bond. Nothing seemed suspicious there. It wasn't stolen or connected to any known crime, but the silenced pistol in the trunk was a giant red flag. Although action movies make it seem like every Tom, Dick, and Harry criminal carries a pistol with a silencer, it was, in fact, the very first time the responding officer had ever even seen a silencer on the streets. So it goes without saying, this was a pretty big deal. As police processed the car, a husky middle-aged man suddenly emerged from out of the store and approached the officers. He told them, that the man who'd taken the vice was his friend, and that had all been a simple misunderstanding. His friend simply thought he'd already paid for it. To try and smooth things over, the man said he'd already gone ahead and paid for the vice, basically suggesting they all just forget about the whole thing and move on. When an officer asked to see some identification, 
he produced a driver's license in the name of Scott Stapley. The car, he said, belonged to his other friend, Lonnie Bond, and that he was just borrowing it. So far, everything seemed legit, and for a moment it appeared as if the entire situation might resolve itself. That is, until the officer radioed in the serial number for the handgun, and it came back registered to Scott Stapley, the same name on the ID the husky man had just given them. Immediately, whoever this man really was, was arrested for possession of an illegal weapon, and as he was taken to the police station, another officer ran the Honda's VIN number, which is when they realized they'd stumbled onto something much bigger than they expected. The vehicle did not belong to someone named Lonnie Bond. In fact, the plates on the car had been deliberately switched. The VIN number revealed that the car actually belonged to a man named Paul Costner, a name they were all very familiar with, because Paul Costner had been missing for seven months and his disappearance had been a major news story in the Bay Area. Not long after being taken to the police station, the man in custody admitted to using a phony ID. Detectives had used the oldest trick in the book on him, taking Scott Stapley's ID and asked him to tell them his birthday. When he couldn't provide the correct answer, he realized the gig was up. His real name, he told them, was Leonard Lake. But before telling them anything more, he asked for a pen, paper, and a glass of water, and then began making a confession. He told them he'd been a fugitive from the law for the past three years, wanted for a litany of weapons charges, and that the man who'd stolen the vice from the hardware store was Charles Ng. As he went on, Leonard spoke calmly, frankly, and freely, as if prepared to tell police everything he knew. But as he continued speaking, something strange started to happen. Leonard was now sweating, his breathing labored, and soon he was lying on the floor, convulsing wildly and violently. What the interrogators hadn't seen was Leonard earlier slipping a cyanide capsule into his mouth and swigging it down with the water they'd given him. He'd kept the capsule hidden under the collar of his shirt for just such a moment. Leonard was then rushed to the hospital, where he fell into a deep coma. He died four days later, having never woken up from his coma. No one at the police station quite knew what to make of what had just happened. First, there was the gun silencer, then the cyanide capsule. They'd never seen anything quite like it before. Just what exactly was Leonard hiding? How bad could it really be that he'd been willing to kill himself before his secrets were discovered? The answer was more horrifying than anything they could have imagined. Inside Paul Costner's Honda, investigators found a utility bill for a cabin in Wilseyville, a remote community about 150 miles northeast of San Francisco in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. The cabin belonged to a woman named Clarolyn Balash, Leonard Lake's ex-wife and now current girlfriend. With little else to go on at the time, investigators decided to head out to the cabin, hoping they might be able to track down the mysterious Charles Ng, the man Leonard Lake had mentioned just before poisoning himself. When investigators arrived at the cabin, there was no Charles Ng, but what they did find was one of the most horrific and disturbing crime scenes ever discovered. On the two-acre property next to the cabin was a large concrete bunker, a building made entirely out of cinder block designed to be a nuclear fallout shelter. But when detectives began searching it, they discovered the building had another, more sinister purpose as well. Walking inside the bunker, it initially looked like a normal tool shed, but after closer inspection, they soon realized there was a secret door located in the wall, disguised as a bookshelf. Behind the door was a room with a bed and a closet full of clothing belonging to Leonard and Charles. And inside this room 
was another door that opened up to a much smaller room, a cell less than half the size of any solitary confinement prison cell. Inside the cell was a sleeping pad, a five-gallon bucket, a roll of toilet paper, and a two-way mirror built into the wall, allowing someone to spy on whoever was trapped inside. Even more hair-raising, the cell had been completely soundproofed with a set of rules taped to the wall. Rule number one, I must always be ready to service my master. I must be clean, brushed, and made up with my cell neat. Rule number two, I must never speak unless spoken to, unless in bed. I must never look my master in the eye, but keep my eyes downcast. Rule number three, I must never show my disrespect, either verbally or silent. I must never cross my arms or legs in front of my body or clench my fists, and unless eating, must always keep my lips parted. Rule number four, I must be obedient completely and in all things. I must obey immediately and without question or comment. Rule number five, I must always be quiet when locked in my cell. Rule number six, I must remember and obey any additional rules told to me. I must understand that any disobedience, any pain, trouble, or annoyance caused by me to my master will be grounds for punishment. The rules made it clear the cell had been used to imprison sex slaves. But even this wasn't the most shocking discovery they'd find on the property. Scattered around practically the entire property were tiny fragments of charred human bone, the remains of human corpses that Leonard and Charles had cremated in burn pits. But there weren't just bone fragments. Soon they found bodies as well. In a shallow grave about a mile from the cabin, the bodies of Lonnie Bond and Scott Stapley were found, buried unceremoniously in sleeping bags with ball gags stuffed in their mouths. Scott Stapley was the name on the driver's license Leonard Lake had been using. Lonnie Bond was the owner of the license plates found on Paul Costner's car. Near the cabin itself, excavations unearthed the bodies of three more men, Randy Jacobson, Maurice Rock, and another man who to this day has never been identified. It was near these bodies where partial skeletal remains were also discovered, including part of a leg bone and a neck bone. Through DNA testing, they were later confirmed to be the remains of 26-year-old mother, Cheryl Okoro. The sheer enormity of the crime scene created a monumental task for law enforcement to collect all the evidence and identify potential victims. In addition to the six bodies and partial remains discovered, a nearly incomprehensible 45 pounds of bone fragments were also collected in the immediate vicinity. In total, authorities estimate they discover the remains of at least 25 victims. 25 victims who had family and loved ones wondering what had happened to them only to realize the pure horror they must have experienced in their final moments. A wound that was opened nearly 40 years ago, with rippled effects still felt to this very day. For the unidentified victims, there would be no justice for what had happened to them. And while the life stories of some of the victims have since been told by the press, there are individual stories of others that have never been told. And until recently, there were people who had no idea their lives were even a part of this tragic story. My name is Cheryl Guyant, and I was placed for adoption in 1976 by my birth mom, Cheryl. I was placed in a wonderful family, very happy, and at the age of 26, I found out that my birth mom had been a victim of the Charles Ng and Leonard Lake serial killings. Cheryl Guyant's birth mother was Cheryl Okoro, one of the victims whose remains were identified from the crime scene at Leonard Lake's cabin. Growing up, Cheryl hadn't known who her biological mother was or even that she'd been adopted. 
So I was placed in a foster home in Grand Rapids with two sisters and a brother, and we ended up adopting another little boy. So we had a big family, loving family. I mean, I didn't want for anything. I never knew I was adopted until I was 10. And the way I found out was so horrible. My little brother, for whatever reason, he was three years younger than me, but he knew that he had been adopted and I didn't know I was adopted. And I had asked my grandmother one day, why did he go to school and tell people that? And she says, well, you were adopted too. It was 1985 when I found out I was adopted. In 1985 is when my mom was going through all of this chaos. I look back at that and I, you know, I see what I was going through, but then I look and think about what she was going through at the same time. It's just unimaginable. When Cheryl learned she was adopted, her family didn't reveal what became of her biological mother, quite possibly because at the time, they didn't actually know what had happened to her, since authorities in California were still piecing together everything that had taken place at Leonard Lake's cabin in 1985. Instead, Cheryl grew up believing a very different story. My grandmother... Well, she was just a mean old lady. And she just said that your mom is dead and your dad did it. And so I just said, okay, well, whatever. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it again. I just want to go back to normal. So I internally suffered for years and years and years, just wondering, you know, like even small stuff, going into the grocery store with my mom and looking around and seeing random women and I'm like could that be my mom is that my mom you know because when you're 10 you don't know you don't really understand the whole adoption thing you know I went through why was I adopted was I unwanted or now you know now that I know that my dad did it supposedly now I have no chance and I have no parents at all so I struggle with that as a child Cheryl tried to suppress her curiosity about what had happened to her mother for a time until she was a teenager. That's when she decided to finally bring up the subject with her adopted mother. When I had the, the nerve, I think I was a teenager, 14 or 15, I asked her, um, what does she know about my mom? And it was a very uncomfortable conversation for me because I felt like me wanting to know that was disloyal to her. So when I asked her though, she told me that my mom went to California to do pornographic videos and she got kidnapped. Hoping to find out more about her birth mother, Cheryl would secretly go to the library and search through microfilm. But without knowing her biological mother's identity, she was never able to find much of anything. As Cheryl became an adult, the subject of her own identity became more and more important to her, and she began to realize that in order to fully understand who she was, she needed to discover her birth parents. And growing up in a black family, I was the same complexion as my mom. My dad was dark skinned. My brother was brown. My other brother was a golden color. So it was, we were all shades. So I didn't feel like a misfit in the family. When I turned about 18, people started asking me what I was, and I really didn't know, especially this Hispanic community would always speak Spanish to me, and I didn't know Spanish, so they would be like, what are you? So I was lacking that sense of identity because I really didn't know. When people started asking me about my race, I started to wonder, like, wow, what am I? Am I mixed with something? If so, what is it? And so that's when I started my, my search again. Over the years, Cheryl picked up bits and pieces of information here and there. She knew her mother had been murdered somewhere out in California, but anything more substantial continued to elude her.
One day, my cousin from my adoptive family called me and said, hey, your aunt called me and she's looking for you. And so I'm like, really? And she says, yes. And she told me all about, you know, your mom was murdered and and we know your dad. You know, he's a really good friend of our family. And so I was very shocked about that. Not long after the phone call, Cheryl was finally able to speak to her biological aunt and ask questions about her mother. And it was then when Cheryl learned her mother hadn't actually been murdered by her father, as she'd been told so many years ago. Instead, she learned that her mother had been a victim of serial killers Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. Her mother, whose legal name was Cheryl Okoro at the time of her death, was a white woman. Her father was a black man. With all this new information, Cheryl now had more questions than answers, and maybe even more questions than she'd even had before. But for the first time in her life, she had a solid foundation to work with. She finally had a jumping off point to find out who her mother had been as a person and how it was she crossed paths with one of the most notorious serial killing duos in American history. How these serial killers stumbled across each other was one of the most unfortunate and terrible quirks of nature, like the formation of a deadly rogue wave, a near-random convergence of darkness and depravity that rose up and crashed down on the shores of society with devastating force. The fact that they even met can only be described as a tragedy. The two men were born 15 years apart on opposite sides of the globe and into remarkably different families. In 1945, Leonard Lake was born in San Francisco where he experienced a tumultuous childhood marked by an alcoholic father until his mother sent him away at the age of nine to live with his grandparents. There he seemed to experience a relatively normal upbringing in a middle-class family where he was an average student. Possibly the first real turning point in Leonard's life happened in 1964 when he decided to join the Marines at 19. It was also around that time when he read something that would shape the course of his life forever. A novel called The Collector by John Fowles. The main character of the book is a lonely butterfly collector who captures a young woman and keeps her as a slave, ultimately leading to her death. The parallels between this book and what would happen 20 years later are eerily similar, intentionally similar. Between 1964 and 1971, Leonard served two tours in Vietnam as a radar technician, and after his first tour, married a woman he could start exploring the fantasies he'd harbored since reading The Collector. It was then Leonard began implementing a master-slave dynamic, which he was, of course, the master. Over the course of their marriage, Leonard abused, beat, and pressured his wife into uncomfortable sexual situations, and it was almost as if something dark had been unleashed. In 1970, during his second tour in Vietnam, despite never having experienced combat firsthand, Leonard was diagnosed by a military doctor with impending schizophrenia and hysterical neurosis. Deemed a danger to himself and others, Leonard was sent back home where he spent the next two months in a psychiatric ward. A year later, his wife filed for divorce. Over the following decade, Leonard led a life that blended elements of survivalism, hippie culture, and doomsday prepping beliefs. He'd relocated to a hippie commune in Northern California with aspirations of constructing a nuclear holocaust-proof bunker. There, he amassed weapons, became obsessed with pornography, and constantly daydreamed of finding the perfect woman or women to join him in his follow shelter when the end of the world finally arrived. But despite his endless chatter about the nuclear bunker, to anyone who'd listen, Leonard never actually succeeded in building it. His efforts were haphazard and driven by either laziness or lack of resources. As a result, his fantasies of becoming the collector remained a distant dream. Then, 
1980, Leonard met his soulmate, a woman named Clarelyn Bellage, he nicknamed Cricket. Most of the appeal came from the fact they shared similar sexual interests, with Cricket willingly taking on the role of Leonard submissive in the bedroom and making homemade pornography with him. It seemed there was nothing Leonard could do to shock her. For a time, Leonard and Cricket happily ran a motel in Philo, California, and then, from across the ocean, another kindred spirit entered Leonard's life. Charles Ng was born in Hong Kong in 1960 and was a disciplinary nightmare for his parents. Pretty much from day one, he had a propensity for violence, and by the age of 10, his family was already seeking psychiatric help. At 18, Charles was sent to live with his aunt in California and to attend college. But after only a few months, he dropped out and joined the U.S. Marines. Although he wasn't a U.S. citizen, Charles got around that by admitting later that the recruiting sergeant had helped him forge the paperwork. After basic training, Charles was stationed in Hawaii, but this wouldn't be where he'd finally get his act together. Instead, Charles developed an almost uncontrollable urge to engage in deviant behavior. In the fall of 1981, Charles stole military weapons from an on-base armory to sell on the black market. After being arrested, he escaped and then went on the run. His ability to slip through authorities' fingers would be a talent he'd come to rely on later. Desperately trying to avoid recapture, Charles contacted one of the only friends he'd made in Hawaii, an army sergeant named Mark Novak, and it was Mark who put Charles in contact with Leonard Lake, a man Mark had met years earlier in California. Mark told Charles Leonard was a fellow Marine who might be willing to help him out, and so Charles bought a flight to San Francisco and sought refuge at Leonard and Cricket's motel. When Charles met Leonard in December 1981, they immediately hit it off. To Charles, Leonard became a father figure, a mentor, and someone he was willing to do anything for. For Leonard, Charles was the perfect protege, someone he could mold into his own twisted image. Most importantly, now that Charles was in the picture, Leonard was finally motivated to do all the things he'd wanted to do for years, even decades. He told Charles about his plan to capture a woman to be a sex slave, and Charles thought it sounded like a good idea. Over the next six months, Charles and Leonard committed a series of crimes together, including violently raping sex workers in San Francisco, but their initial crime spree together was short-lived. In the spring of 1982, the law finally caught up to Charles Ng. He was captured during a police raid on Leonard's home. Charles was then sent off to military prison in Leavenworth, while Leonard was arrested for a number of illegal weapons charges. But instead of facing those charges, Leonard decided to skip bail and live as a fugitive. That's when he and Cricket became legally separated, but still continued seeing each other. She'd remain his girlfriend for the rest of his life. The entire time Charles was in prison, he continuously corresponded with Leonard by mail, to them, prison was just a minor setback, and Leonard intended on making the most of their time apart, preparing for Charles's eventual release, a time when Leonard would finally be able to accomplish the evil fantasies he'd harbored since first reading The Collector. He marked his decision to put that plan into action by starting a diary in 1983, and before long, Leonard began sending Charles photos of the bunker he was constructing, a bunker located at a remote cabin in Wilseyville. In October 1983, Leonard sat down in a chair in the Wilseyville cabin and recorded himself on video, detailing his horrific plans. This tape, what you're hearing now, is going to be the lead-in of the various phases of construction. The building will be multi-purpose. It will serve as a tool room and a storage room for a lot of valuables and miscellaneous stuff. But the main emphasis of the building 
will be a hidden portion of it, a secret room, if we can call it that, that will house a cell, a jail cell, if you will. And the purpose of that cell and the main purpose, hence of the building, will be the imprisonment of the young lady who probably at this moment is unknown to me as to why I would want to imprison and in fact enslave a young woman. They have only to look closely at me. I'm a realist. I'm 38 years old, a bit chubby, not much hair, not particularly attracted to women, or I should say particularly attracting to women. And all of the uh, traditional magnets, the money, the position, slash power, I don't have. And yet, I'm still very sexually active, and I'm still very much attracted to a particular type of woman who, almost by definition, is totally uninterested in me. The type of women Leonard describes are particularly young, and according to him, sometimes as young as 12, petite, with long hair. Leonard tells the camera that he's chubby, balding, and has neither money nor power. I am, in fact, a loner. I enjoy the peace, the quiet, the solitude. I enjoy being by myself. And while my relationships with women in the past have been sexually successful, socially, they've almost always been a failure. I'm afraid a bottom line statement is the simple fact that I'm a sexist slug. I enjoy using women. I certainly enjoy sex. I certainly enjoy the dominance of climbing on a woman and using her body. But I'm not particularly interested in the id, the ego, all the things that man should be interested in to complement a woman's need. Now, I can fake these emotions, and I can fake them very well. But in the long term, I don't want to buy it. What I want is an off-the-shelf sex partner. I want to be able to use a woman whenever and however I want. And when I'm tired or satiated or bored or not interested, I simply want to put her away, lock her up in a little room, get her out of my sight, out of my life. And such an arrangement, of course, is not only blatantly sexist, but uh, highly illegal, there's no doubt about it. It uh, violates all of the human rights and blah, 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 blah. As Leonard speaks to the camera, it becomes more and more blatant and obvious that power and domination are his driving force. The advantages of such a situation are, of course, obvious, and even beyond sexual. Such a woman, totally enslaved, um, would be useful for the mundane chores that I have to do, but I'm not particularly interested in doing. A slave, there's no way around it. Primarily a sexual slave, but nonetheless a physical slave as well. I believe that I can, if I can construct a holding cell, a place where I can put such a woman where I can walk off and feel secure that she can't escape, that I can create a facility that is so stark and so empty, so cold, so quiet, so totally removed from the world, that fairly quickly by a combination of uh, painful punishments when I'm displeased and minor rewards such as music or magazines or some such stuff, that I can quickly condition, this is my belief, that I can quickly condition a young woman to cooperate with me fully and in fact even look forward to cooperating with me fully, simply for no other reason than such cooperation would be a relief from boredom. Whether I can do this or not will remain to be seen. Obviously, I've never done such a thing before. And, um, it may not work. However, I want to try. I want to try. After recording the tape, Leonard labeled the cassette by simply writing the capital letter, M, which stood for the name he'd given his plan, Operation Miranda. Miranda had been the name of the young woman 
held captive in the collector, something Leonard was determined to emulate as soon as Charles was released from prison. Prior to Charles' release, Leonard had committed his first murders, and it started with his own brother, Donald, and his then-former best friend, Charles Gunner, in 1983. Using their identities, Leonard continued cashing in their disability checks to fund the building of his Operation Miranda bunker. And on July 9, 1984, Charles reunited with Leonard after being released from Leavenworth. Only two days later, it's believed that Charles murdered a disc jockey named Don Giulietti at Leonard's orders. On July 25th, Charles and Leonard abducted and murdered three more victims, a couple named Harvey and Deborah Dubs, along with their 16-month-old baby, Sean. It's believed the primary motive for this attack was so that Leonard and Charles could steal high-tech video equipment owned by Harvey, because not only did Leonard plan to enact Operation Miranda soon, he intended to document it on video, and soon... Leonard found his first victim for Operation Miranda, and her name was Cheryl Okoro. So Sherry grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She was the oldest of six kids, and she, she was mistreated at a very, very young age. Um, she, she became a sex object in her house at the age of five. And from there, um, her biological father, he passed away. And her mom at the time was um, a heavy drinker. My grandmother remarried or she had some boyfriends and they would, they would get drunk. And, and my mom, she was 12 years old. These guys, which happened to be black guys, um, would come over and get drunk with her mom and her mom's boyfriend, and then they would have sex with her. And that's kind of, it's kind of been what her life has been since a toddler. At 12 years old, she began to have some, some health issues because these men were just ha coming in every weekend having sex with her. And she got taken to the hospital. She couldn't take it anymore and she had to tell her mom. The hospital knew that she had been being molested. So the next day, Child Protective Services came into the home and removed all of the children. After being rescued from her home by CPS, Cheryl was placed into foster care, but had a habit of running away. At age 15, she was placed into a Catholic boarding school for troubled girls. They would go every Sunday to a community hospital and assist the elderly patients getting ready for church and, you know, games on Sundays or whatnot. And my father... He was a housekeeper at the at that community hospital at the time, and that's where they met. And she fell, she fell head over heels for him. And so they, you know, hooked up a couple of times, and next thing you know, she gets pregnant. And so my father has shared stories with me about them calling him the N-word. And at one point, Sherry ran away and he brought her back to her mom's house. And when he brought her back home, um, they called him the N-word and told him to stay away from her. And so they were just very nasty, racist people back then. And now he's 18, she's 16, he's afraid and she's running away pregnant, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with her. At just 16 years old, Cheryl was pregnant, estranged from her family, and getting no support from the baby's father. But the worst was yet to come. She went over his house one day looking for him, and some of his friends were on the porch. And so they... They set her up 
and told her that my dad wanted a puppy. And so she takes, she's trying to do anything she can to to get his attention. She just loved him so much. And um, they set her up and had her go to a house to get this puppy. She took a taxi. When she got there, the guys basically kidnapped her, held her hostage in the home for about three or four days, raped her, you know, had their way with her. And then finally she was able to escape. I believe she went back home and where where her mom um, finally knew that she was pregnant and and she went from there and she had me. Her mom didn't have custody of her. So, of course, you know, she and I are wards of the state. My birth record says I was brought into the custody of the state of Michigan because my grandfather, my step-grandfather, called CPS and said, we're not taking care of a Black baby. We're not doing it. Despite how reprehensible her grandfather's words may have been, today, Cheryl's daughter looks at that moment in a different light. That was the best thing that they could have done for me. The very best thing that they could have done for me. She she told the caseworker, hey, I will relinquish my rights only if you find her a biracial or a Black family because she is Black and I can't have her in a family like mine. And so for her to put them in the position to where, yes, before I relinquish my rights, you have to find her the right place because of who she is. That was just big. That was big of her. And I admire that. After giving up her first child to adoption, Cheryl soon aged out of the foster care system. And it was right around that time when she met a man who would become the father of her next three children, two daughters, and eventually a baby boy. Again, she thought, you know, she had found someone. He had a family over there that embraced her. So she she was kind of close to the family for a while. And he was a black guy um, and he was on heroin really, really bad. And um, he was very abusive mentally and physically and um, began to get in some trouble in, in Michigan. And so he talked her into going to San Francisco. So she followed him to San Francisco. I had a conversation with him before he passed away. Um, he said that she loved the city. She loved the mountains and the ocean. It was her first time, you know, being out there. And, um, and so they moved out there. They got a place. She was working. While in San Francisco, Cheryl's relationship with the father of her children began falling apart. And eventually, he walked out of her life. He said that the baby looked white. And so he was saying, that's not my baby. So he took my little sisters and left her in Wesley in San Francisco. At some point, Cheryl married another man with the last name of Coro. And although not much is known about this man, it's believed the marriage was simply a way for the man to obtain a green card. It's also been suggested that Cheryl may have been paid for this arrangement because it was during this time Cheryl had been supporting herself by engaging in sex work. In San Francisco, Cheryl lived in an apartment referred to by tenants as the Pink Palace, the kind of apartment where it wasn't uncommon to see people passing through selling drugs to the residents. And one of those people was Leonard Lake. But that's not all he offered residents. In late August and early September in 1984, Leonard circulated a flyer around the building advertising a job opportunity to work at a pot farm near Wilseyville. But the job wasn't real. Instead, it was a ruse to lure victims up to his cabin. It's believed that Cheryl and another Pink Palace tenant named Maurice Rock each separately accepted Leonard's offer to come out to the farm. They were never seen again. 
When Sherry was abducted, she was abducted with another person. And on the way up to the cabin, that man, they shot and killed him and threw him over the medium and continued on with Sherry. Days after kidnapping Cheryl, a neighbor at the Pink Palace witnessed Leonard removing items out of Cheryl's apartment. The landlord who owned the Pink Palace also received a letter, ostensibly from Cheryl, informing him that she'd moved out. Getting their victims to write letters, or in some cases even phone calls, became standard practice for Leonard and Charles as a way for their victims to explain their absences and delay anyone reporting them missing. I found this lady who responded to me from a crime blog. She responded to me and told me that she knew who my mom was and that she was her neighbor. And so I spoke with this lady and she was actually a witness in the case. Um, she witnessed Charles Ng and Leonard Lake removing her refrigerator from her house. And she asked them, what are you doing with my neighbor's stuff? And they said, we're helping her move. Nine months after Cheryl's abduction, when the crime scene in Wilseyville was being excavated, investigators made another startling discovery. A plastic tub, one of several that would be found hidden beneath the earth. Inside the tubs, Leonard had stored valuables he'd buried, a doomsday prepper's version of long-term storage, or perhaps it was meant to be a time capsule. In this particular tub was the diary Leonard had kept from 1983 to 1984. They also found two VHS tapes, the Operation Miranda Manifesto, and the other labeled M-Ladies, Kathy and Brenda. Along with the diary and tapes, they also found an 11-page letter written by Cheryl Okoro. The intended recipient is unknown, although perhaps it was meant only for herself. In the letter, Cheryl tells the story of her own life up to that point. Decades later, when Cheryl Guyant learned who her biological mother was, she reached out to a retired detective who'd worked the case and had the letter. And he called me back in a couple of days and he says, I have a letter for you that we found at the scene of the crime. It's an 11 page letter that your mom wrote and that she's speaking about you in the letter. And I just could not believe that. It, I was just in shock. When I received the letter in my hands and I, I was able to look at her handwriting and kind of learn from her words what happened to her, it was, it was pretty emotional. While the letter provided Cheryl Guyant with the first real insight into her mother's life, the other items gave investigators a look inside the minds of the murderers. The first was Leonard's diary. An entry dated September 10th, 1984, gave clues to what happened to Cheryl Okoro. His first entry after nearly two months of silence, leading the investigating task force to conclude that Cheryl Okoro had become the, quote, pilot subject for Lake's Miranda project. In the diary states, in these months, I've acquired a new toy of good value. The past two months saw Miranda come to fruit. The perfect woman for me is one who is totally controlled. A woman who does exactly what she is told and nothing else. I have observed, I believe, one woman who found this not only acceptable, but even desirable. I doubt this will be the norm. Still, I enjoy using her and seemingly she enjoyed being used. The level of pure narcissistic psychopathy evident in Lake's writing is nearly unbearable to read. Believing that a woman could possibly enjoy being a sex slave kept locked in a small cell? But what Leonard couldn't have known, and what we know now through her daughter's research into her mother's life, was that this wasn't the first time Cheryl had been kidnapped, raped, and held captive. It had happened before when she was 16 and pregnant with her daughter. That time, she'd managed to escape. This time, there could be no question. 
that Cheryl was just as determined to escape her captors in Wilseyville. Nobody knows for sure how long Cheryl was held captive before her eventual murder, but Lake's diary reveals something he never intended it to, her incredible resilience. Despite being in the clutches of a bonafide psychopath, Cheryl maintained the courage to mask her true feelings and fight for her survival by playing along. The mental and emotional fortitude required to do so is almost beyond comprehension. Recently, when I received Leonard Lake's diary and what he said about her in the diary about her, she liked it and I just feel like she probably was going along with it to kind of spare herself and I just put myself in her shoes and think like that's probably what I would have done, you know, to kind of spare myself as much pain as she probably went through. And, you know, I think about it now and I could have been just like her, you know, just wrong place, wrong time, you know, meeting the wrong person. By the time Cheryl Coral was murdered, sometime in the fall of 1984, Leonard Lake was already responsible for an estimated nine or ten murders. The number Charles is believed to have taken some part in is potentially as high as seven. But tragically, there were many more to come. After Cheryl and Maurice Rock, another resident of the Pink Palace named Randy Jacobson disappeared on October 15th, 1984. In November, Paul Costner was murdered, likely so Leonard could steal his identity and vehicle. Then, in the beginning of 1985, two men who worked with Charles at a moving company, Clifford Parenteau and Jeffrey Gerald, were murdered as well. In April, Mike Carroll, a man who'd served time with Charles in Leavenworth, was abducted and murdered. Two days later, they lured his girlfriend, Kathy Allen, to Wilseyville, where she became the next victim of Operation Miranda. Portions of her abduction and sexual torture were discovered on the VHS tape labeled M-Ladies, Kathy and Brenda. Most notably, Charles Ng can be seen participating in the video as well. We go along with this, cooperate with this. We'll be as nice as we can to you within the limits of keeping you prisoner. If you don't go along with this, I'll we'll probably take you into bed, tie you down, rape you, shoot you, and bury you. While you're here, we'll keep you busy. You'll wash furs, you'll clean furs, cook furs, you'll furs. That's your choice in a nutshell. It's not much of a choice. Unless you've got that wish. Yeah, I about a week later, Leonard and Charles attacked their neighbors, who lived in the cabin next door, murdering Lonnie Bond and his partner, Brenda O'Connor, their infant son, Lonnie Jr., and a family friend named Scott Stapley. Brenda was the second woman seen on the M-Ladies VHS tape, and her portion is extremely disturbing, as she asked Leonard and Charles what's happened to her baby again. Charles Ng can be seen participating. Brenda, I have a lot of animosity against you, and I would just as soon start you out with a nice firm whipping right now to make you believe how serious we are. Your baby is going to take, be taken away. Excuse me. Uh, I'm going to be taken away. There's a family down in that doesn't have a baby. You're not taking my baby. Baby's dead, right? They got one now. That's my baby. In the video, Leonard and Charles told Brenda her boy had been given to a family in Fresno, but Charles would later confess to a prison inmate that the child had, in fact, been murdered. These are the known victims of Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, a total of 19, possibly 20. But the amount of bone fragments and other evidence collected from the cabin in Wilseyville puts the low estimate of victims at 25 most likely more. Recent efforts to identify any unknown remains through modern DNA technology are currently underway.
After discovering the crime scene in Wilseyville, finding Charles Ng became the number one priority for law enforcement nationwide. But Charles turned out to be incredibly elusive. After fleeing the shoplifting scene at the hardware store, Charles had run to a payphone where he called Cricket to come pick him up, helping him escape. That night, Charles boarded a flight to Chicago using a phony ID. The next day, investigators met with Cricket and asked for permission to search her family's property in Wilseyville, and she agreed, under one condition. They meet her the following morning at the town's general store. The reason? Cricket claimed that the cabin was hard to find and give directions to. Sensing nothing amiss, the detectives agreed. But as soon as the detectives left, Cricket raced up to Wilseyville and began cleaning up the cabin and removing evidence. Cricket would later claim that she'd only removed items she felt might be personally embarrassing to her. What Cricket took from the cabin remains one of the biggest mysteries still surrounding this entire case. It's been wildly speculated that Cricket didn't just remove potentially embarrassing items, but rather incriminating items. Speculation about what she may have removed ranges from more Miranda tapes to another diary kept by Leonard to the horrifying potential that there may have even been a person locked inside the bunker. We'll simply never know. All we do know is that nothing found at the Wilseyville property directly implicated Cricket in any of the murders. While investigators continued searching the crime scene, Charles escaped California and made his way up into Canada, where he lived as a vagabond, avoiding detection. But on July 6th, Charles's compulsion for shoplifting came back to bite him. The most wanted international fugitive on the planet was caught stealing a tin of canned salmon, a two-liter bottle of soda, and some other basic food items. But Charles wouldn't go down without a fight. During the arrest, Charles resisted and shot a security guard through the hand before being apprehended, landing him an attempted murder charge. Charles being arrested in Canada proved to be the beginning of one of the most expensive and drawn-out legal sagas in American history. Because while the United States wanted Charles extradited to face murder charges, Canada battled internally about whether or not to extradite a person facing the death penalty, which turned out to be a massive political firestorm. Eventually, Canada's Supreme Court finally ruled that Charles could be extradited, and he was returned to the U.S. in 1991, but wouldn't stand trial for another seven years. In that seven years, Charles used every trick in the book to delay his trial, and by the end of it, the entire charade had cost taxpayers more than $20 million, more than double the O.J. Simpson trial three years earlier. Coincidentally, Cheryl Guyant was living in San Francisco when Charles Ng's trial began. I was out in San Francisco from like 96 to 99. And I can remember 1999 Charles Ng, it was a big thing out there. I remember seeing him so vividly in court, in handcuffs, in his orange jumpsuit. And I had no idea at the time that he had murdered my mom. Officially, Charles was charged with two counts of murder, but none of the victims from the Pink Palace, including Cheryl Okoro, were among them. I feel like she got the short end of the stick again in life. Someone needs to be responsible for something in her life. No one ever was held responsible for all the things that happened to her as a child, her parents, you know, she just had a hard life. And then to be, have her life taken in this way and then still not even get any justice while there's zero doubt that the Pink Palace victims had been murdered by Leonard Lake, proving that Charles had taken part in them would have been extremely difficult and highly circumstantial. As a result, prosecutors chose not to include them at trial. Ultimately, Charles Ng was found guilty 
on 11 of the 12 counts of murder and sentenced to death. To this day, Charles is still filing appeals. His most recent was denied by the California Supreme Court just last July in 2022. Even though the crimes of Leonard Lake and Charles Zang occurred nearly 40 years ago, a sense of incomplete justice continues to linger, leaving deep, unhealed wounds in the heart of the victims' families, with each of them coping with their grief in different ways. For Cheryl Guyant, the way she finds peace is by sharing her mother's story. It's not sitting right to me to just leave it at... She was a prostitute. She was doing porno videos in California and she ran across a serial killer and she was murdered because that's not her story. So I decided to, to tell her story in a different light. Today, Charles Ng remains on California's death row where it's unlikely he'll ever be executed unless California lifts its moratorium on capital punishment. And while deep down, Cheryl Guyant would love to see her mother receive justice in the form of a conviction. She knows it's something that will probably never happen. But there's still one lingering mystery that Cheryl would love to have an answer for. The very, very most important thing that they can tell me is where is my brother? In the years since discovering her mother's identity, Cheryl Guyant has been able to locate and connect with two half-sisters, the ones her father took away from Cheryl Okoro when he abandoned her in San Francisco. But she's never been able to find her brother, Wesley, Cheryl Okoro's youngest child. I believe the detective told me she left my brother with a sitter and something happened to him while he was at that sitter and he got injured and he had to go to the emergency room. So when he went to the emergency room, I don't know if they realized at that time if she was missing. I don't know the time frame on that, but the doctor who did his surgery supposedly adopted him. You know, I need to know where he is. Is he safe? Does he know who she is? You know, it's just so many unanswered questions. And because of the nature of this case, maybe whoever adopted him didn't even want him to know. So he could, maybe he doesn't even know who he is. I know how I felt without knowing who I was, even though I was in the best family that I could ever prayed for. That void within you not knowing, it's horrible. It's horrible. And I, and I, it ruined my childhood and my teenage years. So if he is in fact biracial, I know he wants to know. He has to want to know who he is. But that's like my last piece of this is him. Recently, Cheryl Guyant spoke with a cold case detective who shined a bit of light on what had happened to her brother. One of her boyfriends stabbed him, I guess, and he ended up in the hospital. So when he went, when she took him to the hospital, San Francisco Child Protective stepped in, of course, and took him from her. And that was in 1984. But he did get it. So he did get adopted. Um, he was in foster care and he ended up getting adopted. So I'm pretty sure he's not even Wesley anymore. But he did suggest that I do 23andMe. And he said, you'd be surprised if you're not afraid of the DNA thing. I really suggest you do that. On May 28th, 2022, on what would have been her mother's 63rd birthday, Cheryl Guyant published her book titled A Letter from Sherry a novel inspired by her mother's 11-page letter discovered at the crime scene in Wilseyville. It was so routine for her life to be thrown away, unheard, mistreated, um, unimportant. And I just think that all of those things played a role in her life that led up to what happened to her. And I felt like I owed her that much. 
she she saved my life by holding the foster system accountable and to placing me somewhere where I fit in. The only say-so she ever had in her life was my daughter needs to be in a biracial or a black family. That's the only say-so she's ever had. Besides sharing her mother's story, Cheryl also draws inspiration on her own story by helping other children in the foster care system. I love to welcome listeners to support my nonprofit, the Shania Rose Community Development Corporation. We'd love to have you join in on our mission to provide assistance for foster children with much needed support, resources, and programs, starting from the initial removal process to aging out of the foster care system. Together, we can improve the quality of life of all of our foster children. To learn more and reach out to say hello, please visit www.shaniyarosecdc.org. That's S-H-A-N-I-Y-A-R-O-S-E-C-D-C.org. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week... Thanks for listening.